Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Amanda Laird, a registered holistic nutritionist and host of the Heavy Flow podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to periods, reproductive health, and other taboo health and wellness topics. Amanda is also the author of Heavy Flow, Breaking the Curse of Menstruation, scheduled for release in March of 2019. We will be speaking with Amanda today about her podcast and book and how casting our current policy responses to menstruation as human rights violations are an essential part of our efforts to shift societal norms around women's bodies, health, and ultimately our freedom and equality. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. You're a busy lady. And before we get to talking about your current projects, I'd like to ground us in a childhood experience you had that seems to have inspired your interest and later expertise that you've built in the area of nutrition and women's reproductive health. You found menstrual activism as a teenager, you wrote in your book, and your interest in reproductive health and sex brushed up against punk rock. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like my interest in reproductive health and sex and bodies started even before I was a teenager. My sister was born when I was almost 10 years old. And I was very curious to know how that baby got made and went to my school library and lied to the librarian and said, my mom is pregnant. She asked me to get a book about pregnancy and how and how babies are made. And I checked it out of the library and took it upon myself to begin my sex education. So I was about 10 when that was really born. But then when I was a teenager, I went to a lot of punk rock shows, local bands where I grew up, which was just outside of Toronto in the suburbs. And I was also a very early internet adopter. So I'm 36 now. So when I was a teenager, like 20 years ago, the internet was still just kind of a baby. But I was an early adopter and I was online reading a lot of blogs and uh, zines. And that's where I found Riot Girl. And Brampton, where I grew up, had a, a small Riot Girl chapter and they put out a zine. And in the zine was a pattern for cloth pads and accompanying this pattern that you could sew yourself at home was some information about toxic tampons. So this was the 90s, the toxic shock crisis of the 80s was still quite fresh. It had been just a few years, although I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, this was just a few years after regulations and policies were put in place to make sure that you know, tampons were safe. And to me, it just hit home immediately. I think always having had that interest in in bodies and reproductive health, reading about how tampons could be dangerous to our health just resonated with me immediately. And so I swore off tampons, I started sewing my own pads. And the rest is kind of history, as they say. Wow. How did your parents respond? Well, I was kind of a weird kid to begin with. So it was kind of like, okay, whatever. Now you're doing that. <laughs> I don't have any particular memories of my parents having negative reactions. I mean, my parents really let me be who I am. But do remember the kind of negative reactions and harsh criticisms from my friends this was something that really sparked my attention and I wanted to talk about it with my friends and I would make little flyers that I would paste up in the, the girls' bathroom at school and I made mini zines about toxic tampons and, and menstruating stuff. And 
people just made fun of me for that. They thought that I was weird. They thought that I was gross. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And eventually I really did internalize that shame and it was something. And so my interest from that perspective really went dormant Mm. until, you know, 2017, 2016, when I started working as a nutritionist and when I launched the podcast. That speaks to the tagline of your book, which is breaking the curse of menstruation. The fact that your friends and peers responded in that way. And so can you talk about how menstruation is a taboo subject and its association with being dirty and quote unquote dirty and gross grew out of early myths where it was viewed as either dangerous or sacred? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing about periods and menstruation is we don't know that much about it. And what we do know, we haven't known for a very long time, right? And part of that has to do with it's taken a long time for us to develop an understanding of the body. Medical science has is still quite a new science, right? So we just haven't known that much about bodies and how they work for very long in terms of, you know, the big picture of human history. So there's that piece. But the other piece is that even throughout all of the development of medical science, we've ignored, flat out ignored female bodies. And people who were you know, developing medicine as we know it today, they were men. They looked at a male body as the ideal body. And female bodies were really seen as a defect of the male body. So you're saying that because of the lack or partly we can attribute these myths as being perpetuated partly to the lack of investment in getting to know and understand the female body. And so it's remained a mystery, quote unquote. When you talk about these myths, they're very much part of our inclination as a society to define things into binary categories, especially in how we characterize women and the virgin whore dichotomy, I, I thought when, when I read that part about dangerous or sacred. What impact have these myths had on men and on women and on relationships? Oh, that's a great question. And I think it's a big one. And I think, you know, the biggest impact, I, I think that because we don't understand periods, they're misunderstood as something that's gross or dirty, right? Like, ooh, yuck. We're not supposed to talk about them. We're not supposed to show signs of menstruating. We learn very early on as teenage girls that we have to hide the tampon in our boot, you know, when we're going to the bathroom. And I think that creates a very isolating experience. I think that for women, we really internalize that messaging that our bodies are something to be ashamed of. And, you know, the biggest impact that I think it really has is that a lot of people suffer because we haven't invested in the female body. We don't understand how it works. We don't understand how it's different from a male body, particularly don't understand menstruation and some of the diseases that affect menstruation like endometriosis or adenomyosis, which are very, very painful diseases that affect menstruation, or even just, you know, cramps. We don't know all that much about cramps or have great ways to treat them beyond mainstream painkillers. So I think that that has really affected women. For men, I mean, men, I think it's even more complicated, the period taboo, because men don't understand it. And particularly when you think about, I think, white men, here you are, They're just given the world on a silver platter and they're told that everything is for them. I think it's harmful not to teach men about periods because they grow up to be researchers, they grow up to be doctors, and so it's not an area of interest to them because they never learned about it. And in terms of relationships, I mean, I think that that's that's a tough one and I I don't know how to answer that. I think that what happens in the world is one thing, but what happens within a relationship is another. And so you might be more open 
with your partner one-on-one, you know, you're sharing a bathroom. So you might be more open to, you know, having a box of pads on the counter or something like that. So I think it's hard, hard to define how it might affect relationships. When you were talking, I was reminded of various stereotypes that are portrayed in the media constantly about the, the counter to female, the female body in comedy, for example. And there's a lot of fart jokes, for example, right? Flatulence <laughs> is a typical male trope in male buddy films, but we don't really have any counterpart to that in rom-coms about you know women's bodies. And then I also thought about when you were talking about relationships, the lack of intimacy that can be a result of these stereotypes that are being perpetuated, these binaries, it's unlikely that they're not impacting heterosexual relationships in some way as well in terms of the lack of desire potentially to want to get to know the other person's body for pleasure you were, I think, alluding to. So it probably impacts that in some way. We just don't know to what extent. I also think that male partners are probably more supportive than we give them credit for. Since I've done the podcast, I've talked to a lot of women who felt like they had to kind of keep their period pain secret or they had to hide it or not talk about it from their male partners. But then once they did start to open up. As it turned out, they actually did want to learn and they wanted to know more about it. And, you know, I've come across people like when I was writing the book, I remember there was a guy that I often ran into at a coffee shop where we were both working and we started chatting and he was writing a book and I was writing a book. And when I told him when I was writing about it, he was like fascinated. And he was like, wow, I had no idea what I didn't know. And I I had no idea how fascinating the subject is. And I do hear that from a lot of men that I I speak to now that they're like, I had no idea. I wish I knew more. I wish I had been taught that when I was in health class. And so I do think that they want to know and they want to support us. And they they just don't have the tools. I'm really surprised that you have examples of women not even sharing it with their partners, which I guess speaks to the magnitude of the issue. I want to read some statistics that you shared in your book around period pain. You state that 45 to 95% of women experience period pain, the equivalent of eight years over the course of a woman's lifetime. You quoted Abby Norman as saying, quote, nobody takes women's pain seriously, not even women, unquote. And you also wrote, on average, it takes about two years for a person experiencing extremely painful menstruation to even broach it with their doctors. So that, I guess, speaks to your example of women not even sharing with their partners. What do you think is the reason behind that level of reluctance? You know, I think as women, we have internalized this idea of Eve's curse, right? And that to be a woman is to experience pain. And we're told that, you know, when 45 to 90%, and that's a a huge window, right? And I found lots of different statistics about how many people suffer from some type of pain related to menstruation, and they varied. Right. And so it was anywhere in that 45 to 90 percent. But whatever the number is, regardless of the number, most people have some pain associated with menstruation. I think it's fair to say. And so just because this is common, we have internalized this as a normal experience. Right. Like, oh, I have period cramps. Well, that's normal. But we mistaken that just because something is common doesn't make it normal. And the example that I always give is like, where else in the body is pain considered to be normal? Like if I had experienced a pain in my knee or back pain, and this was, you know, happening regularly and was interfering with my ability to work or go to school or to have a social life, you know, that pain would be immediately taken seriously right? If I told you, oh, my elbow hurts, you would say maybe you should go get that checked out. But when we talk about pain in relation to menstruation, 
is just something that we're taught that we should expect. Well, you also talk about the disparity that women, the medical inequity that women experience when they try to access help. So you said that women having a stroke or heart attack are more likely to be misdiagnosed in an ER than men. They wait 65 minutes versus 49 minutes for men. And they're more likely to be given a sedative than pain medication. So this reminded me of the Serena Williams example, Mm -hmm. where we know that disproportionately Black women, even more than women in general, other groups of women have their pain and their medical responses to their pain either ignored or minimized. And so there are serious health consequences for this from a medical perspective, from a public health perspective. And yet we have all of this documentation and we as women still you know, buy into, I guess, the narrative that we need to endure and maybe our pain isn't as real. And what can we do about that? Ooh. <laughs> That's a big question Um, because, you know, this is like these are systemic issues, right, that are the result of living in a patriarchy that hates women, right? I mean, what can we do? I feel like it seems almost too simple, but starting to talk about it, right, every time I have a conversation with somebody about menstruation or every podcast that I do or my book or every interview that I do about my book. We're talking about these issues a little bit more and that's going to start to break the curse, right? Because we need to understand our bodies. We need to understand how they work. We need to understand what's happening, what's normal, what's not. And when it comes to menstrual issues, if we can't even bring ourselves to say the word period or to talk about our periods because we're entrenched in shame and taboo, then we can't access the health care that we need. So once we can talk about it without it being enshackled in, in shame and in taboo, then we can start to demand that we have research into causes and treatments and prevention. Um, we can demand better healthcare. We can demand better solutions. But that starts with, you know, just being able to bring ourselves to even talk about our experience. In your book, you refer to the year 2015 as the year of the period. And you cited an example of an artist and poet, Rupi Carr, who posted a self-portrait on Instagram and how that ignited the coverage of menstruation above the fold and in mainstream news outlets. Can you talk about first that example and how you think since then the conversation or narrative has has shifted? Yes, absolutely. And I always talk about these things with the caveat that while 2015 was named the year of the period, menstrual activists and women's health activists have been working for decades before you know, it got that mainstream news coverage. So this type of activism isn't new. It has existed since, you know, the 60s and the women's health movement. However, because of that shame and the the nature of the topic, it has really kind of existed in the fringes. But in 2015, so Rupi Kaur had posted a photo on Instagram as part of a project she was doing as a student. And the photo is a recognizable scene for anybody who's had a period. She's lying on her bed. There's a stain on her sweatpants and on the sheets. Her back is faced towards the camera. And the post was removed by Instagram not once but twice. And it was supposedly violating the community guidelines. And after it was taken down, Rupi had wrote on her Facebook, well, you know, that reaction of it being removed was the exact reaction that she was looking for, right? It just kind of proves the point that an image like this is, you know, something that was supposed to be hidden and kept secret. And, you know, I think that 2015 was... A turning point for menstrual activism, menstrual equity, period, positivity, however you want to position it, because of social media. 
an image of Kiran Gandhi, who a couple months after Rupi posted her picture, Kiran Gandhi went viral because she ran the London Marathon without any products when she was on her period. So she crossed the finish line, she's wearing hot pink tights, and there is just a noticeable blood stain. She had menstruated right into her running tights. And that really is a shocking image to see. So I feel like our social media that is highly visual was a great platform for some of these shocking images that came out in 2015 that really forced you to look at menstruation head on, which paved the way for talking about some of the important issues. You know, menstrual equity, the conversation around menstrual equity is usually centered around access to products and making sure that, you know, anybody who menstruates has access to clean water, privacy, um, and safe, effective products that they can manage their period blood. But I, I feel like we need to make that conversation even bigger and bring that pain and bring that health perspective into it as well. You mentioned that the menstrual activism and period feminism started decades ago. In your book, you talked about why feminists participated in silencing that conversation. Can you, can you address that? Yeah. You know, I think that the reason why this was a fringe movement that, and I, I say this with the pun totally intended, existed on the wings of feminism is at the core of feminism is that women are equal to men, right? That's what that political movement is centered around. And so when the conversation is really centered around equality, I think it's kind of been watered down into that we're the same, right? And so to talk about our bodies, to talk about issues like menstruation or pregnancy or access to maternity leave, these types of things are kind of lost because to bring them to the forefront is to say that we're different from men, that women's bodies are different from male bodies, and then that could be used against us which is what Chris Bobble, who is a noted scholar in terms of menstrual activism, that's how, how she kind of sums it up. Feminists are afraid to talk about it, or we don't want to talk about it because then it could be used against us. And would you say that if we were to reframe the goal of feminism to actually liberate us from patriarchy, then it would be consistent to have this conversation? Yes, I think so, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why menstruation is such a taboo topic is because it reminds us of how bodies are unpredictable, right? They bleed, they leak, they die, right? And they're not a female body that is cycling, has a menstrual cycle, isn't going to feel the same every day. But the capitalist framework that we all live and operate under, you know, relies on us being productive every day, being ready to work every day, right? And so the menstruating body is trying to put a square peg into that round hole. And so we devalue ebbs and flows, ups and downs, the natural rhythms of our hormonal cycles and our bodies, right? And so I think we also have to look at how just our society as a whole just doesn't have space for bodies that aren't thin, able-bodied, male, white bodies. It goes beyond just talking about menstruation, right? Just this framework that we live in definitely serves one type of body. And I want to go back to what you said earlier about how menstrual equity has been, for the most part, cast as just access to products. So menstrual cramps, is the, you wrote, is the most common gynecological problem in adolescent girls and the leading cause of short-term absences from school and work. And so in that regard, it's been deemed a human rights issue if girls and, and women aren't able to be productive and enjoy full access to their lives. So if we can't even deal with that, how can we even have the conversation? Absolutely. 
And I think that that goes back to this idea that it's normal for a female body to experience pain. And so I think that we've kind of ignored the pain side, ignored the suffering in favor of access to products. And and don't get me wrong, I 100% believe that anybody who needs a menstrual product is entitled to them. So I'm not saying that this isn't an important fight. But what I'm saying is I think it's an easier one because, you know, to put a tampon in every hand that needs one is a lot easier to measure than are we reducing, you know, the instance of pain or disease worldwide. Right. To me, it's it's very similar to how we as a society elevate giving attention and resources to ending violence against women, physical violence against women, but not criminalizing coercive control and the various Mm. ways in which women are in relationships that enslave them mentally or psychologically and emotionally and keep them from doing what they want to do or even Mm. thinking about what they want to do because it's easier to measure the physical. The other reason why the focus is also on products is because that's good for business. So when you look in these areas, you know, you look at rural areas of Africa or India, right, where they don't have 17 different brands to choose from, right? And they might be using rags or homemade products to transition them to disposable products that need to be purchased. That's all fuels the capitalist machine. And so I hate to go here, it almost, you know, makes it I hate to think that the world is so evil, right? But it makes good business sense to provide access to products in these emerging markets. Well, I would also say this speaks to a lot of the short-term-minded mentality that social impact investors and investors in these areas have have had when considering opportunities to invest, I think, because... It reminds me of my conversation with a former guest, Kat Song, who is the founder of ExelCoin, and she produces a product that helps Rohingya migrants to be able to verify their identity, to engage and participate in society more fully, to get educated. And her struggles in getting investment she shared was because of the lack of a long-term approach towards recognizing that people and human capital as an investment, as a future labor force, as a future consumer force is more important than the short-term costs of ignoring them. And so I feel like this is a similar conversation because you wrote in your book, 15 billion in annual sales that the feminine hygiene industry is generating. I'm sure if we calculated, it'd be much more than that in terms of the opportunity cost of all of the time that these women and young girls are losing from going to school or going to work and productivity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. why aren't we looking at it from that perspective? Yeah, absolutely you know, in terms of productivity. So one of the things that I think is fascinating, right, is when you start to dig into how menstrual cycle hormones affect your attention span, your productivity, your energy levels, your appetites, right? Like, we often use the term being hormonal as an insult to kind of fling at a woman who might be going through perimenopause or who's being overly emotional or what we think is irrational, right? We'll say, oh, she's hormonal, use this as an insult. But to be hormonal is actually to be alive because our hormones are, you know, essential to our living. They control every body system. They control all kinds of bodily functions. And we know that our, and I say we know this not just because it's documented, we have studies to show how things like estrogen, progesterone, the two main hormones of our menstrual cycle affect our attention span, our energy levels, all these types of things. And so, you know, in the first half of our cycle, anybody, and I think anybody who's had a menstrual cycle probably senses this intuitively that their moods 
and their energy tends to cycle. I know for me personally, that week after my period, I just feel like I could build a house with my two hands, right? Like that's the time of my cycle where I just feel like I have so much energy, so much drive to get things done. And then in the second half of my cycle, there always seems to come a day when I wake up and my energy is low and my mood is low. And I feel like, am I on the right course? Am I, should I keep making my podcast, you know, and I really call all this stuff into question. And once I started to learn about my menstrual cycle and learn about hormones and how they affect us, that that's actually normal, right? In the first half of our cycle, when estrogen is rising, that's what gives us that kind of boost of energy and productivity. Then in the second half of our cycle, when estrogen falls and progesterone is rising, that can make us, you know, more fatigued. It can keep our mood lower, can naturally make us want to stick closer to home, right? And so rather than denying these ebbs and flows, could we actually, you know, get to know and understand our bodies and then use that to our advantage? Like, what would the world be like if we were all maximizing that week of our cycle when we were feeling super productive and then taking time to rest when we felt like we needed to rest. I think that's a great segue into your own journey of awakening that you wrote about in your book since you launched your podcast. And when you referenced the long-term effect of your use of hormonal birth control. So did that coincide at all with your decision to leave PR and become a nutritionist, the timing of stopping birth control? So not quite. That came a little bit later. However, I, you know, had decided to go to nutrition school and birth control always felt like my last frontier. So although I had made lots of changes in my life, I felt like I had no choice but to be on birth control. Even though I didn't like the idea of taking synthetic hormones, but my experience in the past, you know, anytime I had tried to stop taking hormonal birth control, my periods were just, they were heavy, they were irregular, I would have no period for six months, and then I would have a two week bleed every two weeks for six weeks, you know, and so it was very difficult to manage my life around my period. And then I also I didn't want to have a child, you know, I was still in my late 20s, early 30s, I didn't feel ready to start a family at that time. And, you know, we're really taught that we're fertile beings 24 seven that, you know, we could get pregnant off of sitting on a toilet seat. So we better be protecting ourselves at all costs. And so I really felt like I was enslaved to hormonal birth control. And it was when I was in nutrition school that I started to learn more about how menstrual cycles worked. That's when I learned about fertility awareness, which is a practice of observing your ebbs and flows and your signs of fertility to kind of identify when your fertile window is open in order to achieve or avoid pregnancy. And it was learning through that, that I felt like I could liberate myself from birth control. So once I knew the truth, and anybody who's ever tried to get pregnant will tell you that how many days of a cycle you actually have to get pregnant is quite small. Once I understood that and I started to get to know my own body, I felt comfortable in stopping the hormonal birth control. But I really feel like that event also set in a series of events that helped me get back in touch with that young girl making zines who was interested in reproductive health, who was interested in period stuff, who wanted to make a difference and be an activist and and help people, which is what I had wanted to do back when I was 16, 17 years old, but was really something that I put on the back burner to, I'm using little bunny ears here, have a normal life, successful life. 
And that speaks to what you said earlier about your questioning the choices that you had in life and whether or not if you weren't on birth control, you would have made different choices. When you spoke about that exercise, it reminded me of sort of meditation. It seemed like a form of mindfulness Mm. um, that really helped you get back to your authentic self. And maybe that's what led to your journey to become a podcaster about this issue. I don't feel like I can say with authority that, yes, that was the reason why I did this or why I did that. But it's just a question that I have. I can't travel back in time and make different decisions and see what happens, obviously, right? But I do wonder if I hadn't suppressed my cycles, if I hadn't been taking synthetic hormones, would I have made the same choices? I don't know. But certainly, I do know that since I stopped taking hormonal contraception, and then I also became pregnant. So about a year later, I got pregnant and I had a child. And so that was all about four and a half years ago. And in the last four and a half years, I feel more like myself than I ever have in my whole life. And I don't know, maybe that's a benefit of reaching your mid thirties. Maybe it's, you know, all these things put together. Well, let's talk about your podcast. You have been doing this for about two years. Yeah, it was born in the spring of 2017, and then it launched on iTunes September 2017. Okay. And who's your target audience for the podcast? Is it mainly young girls and women of menstruating age? Or is there part of your podcast is also something that men can potentially policymakers can be interested in? Yeah, well, I think my idealistic idea is, you know, the podcast is for everyone. I think we should all be listening to conversations about these issues. But primarily, the audience is, I wouldn't say young girls, it's more women that are a little bit older, have been menstruating for some time, and they are looking to break the curse. They might suffer from endometriosis or they might have painful periods or maybe they're just interested in the more feminist perspective and looking to just learn more about their bodies and then the cultural impacts around it. But I would hope that there are policymakers and decision makers listening to this podcast because I think we talk about some really important things that need to be brought into sharp focus in our public consciousness. Well, one of your recent guests, Jonathan Hira, is a investor. Uh, And so hopefully from that perspective, that'll appeal to men who are interested in learning how to reallocate their resources. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jonathan... Jonathan is a, is amazing. And I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan. And I think it's interesting to kind of set up how Jonathan and I kind of got to meet. I know his partner professionally. And she said, I think I would like to introduce you to my husband. I think you guys would have a lot to talk about. And I kind of was like, okay, like, what would I ever possibly want to talk to like your white male husband who works in finance about. And as it turns out, we had a lot to talk about. (laughs) We had a lot to talk about. And, you know, as an investor, Jonathan has made a lot of investing in that menstrual equity space in organizations like Lunapads or Afropads that are doing work around the world to kind of break the curse. But he really opened... He really opened my eyes and that conversation really opened my eyes to how necessary money is in Mm. doing the work. Mm -hmm. What interviews and topics have been the most popular among your listeners? So the two interviews that had the most downloads of all time were conversations that centered around like what is a normal healthy period and what does stress have to do with our menstrual cycle shows up? How does food affect it? So those are kind of the top two. So my interview with Dr. Laura Bryden was my top episode. And then I think with Nicole Jardim is is at the top two and, and she's a women's health coach and she talks a lot about food and nutrition. And I think that the fact that those are at the top 
of the most popular list really speaks to that 45 to 90% statistics that we talked about at the top of our interview that like so many of us are suffering and we don't have a lot of options beyond taking hormonal birth control in our traditional, or I should say our conventional medical system. And so we are looking to that alternative holistic paramedical space for relief. And I think a lot of listeners come to my podcast because they just want their pain and their suffering to be witnessed. And they want somebody to say, yes, this is an issue. Yes, this is real. And, you know, here are some things that you can do yourself. And then I think that the conversations that we have around the feminist perspective, the body positive perspective, and some of the cultural issues is something that they haven't thought about before. But once you think about it, you like can't unsee it. What about the episodes where you answer listener questions? Were there any that surprised you or responses to those questions that drew criticism? You know, I have been very lucky so far that I haven't received a lot of criticism. For the podcast, the response is generally pretty positive. But I should say that the question period series really came out after I taught a class at the nutrition school where I graduated from. I designed and I teach a a practicum for holistic nutrition students about menstrual cycles for holistic nutritionists. And I got a question where a student had asked me if menstrual blood was the same as the rest of the blood in your body. That's a totally valid question to ask because how would she know when she's never been taught much of anything about what menstruation is? So that's why I wanted to start taking listener questions in a safe space. No question is too dumb. No question is too gross. I will answer your question. If I can't answer it, I'll bring on a guest because I think we all have these quote unquote dumb questions and that's because we've never been taught. Mm -hmm. So how would we know? You mentioned earlier that education is the key to destigmatizing menstruation and improving our lives, the lives of girls and women. So how do you plan on distributing and remarketing this book and potentially repurposing your podcast if necessary to a younger audience because it seems to me that these questions should have been answered when girls are experiencing it getting their periods for the first time they should know or have at least have access to this information not when they're decades into the experience yes absolutely and you know that was a strategic decision that i made at the beginning i wanted to reach women who are already menstruating Right. And thinking about breaking that curse so that they could pass on a more educated view, a more healthy relationship with their bodies and with their menstruation to the next generation. Because I could have written a book that was targeted towards a young adult audience, but they're not the ones who are buying that book. Yeah, some of them are going to be weird like me and going to the library on doing their own research, but chances are their moms or their aunts or their sisters or whoever their, you know, female guardians might be are the ones who are buying them this book. And if your mother is still in that paradigm that your period is something that is shameful, it's something to be hidden, she's going to pass that on to the next generation. So I needed to break that curse so that we're not passing that on. But I do hope that I will be able to adapt the book for a younger audience in the future. That's on my list of goals. I experienced this challenge as well with my podcast that in a way you're preaching to the converted for people who are going to voluntarily come and find you, right? So how do you actually reach people who who believe in the curse? <laughs> and that's actually the purpose of your book is to educate. I don't know that I purposefully am reaching beyond. I think that if you are, you know, a woman or a menstruating body and you're just attuned to living in the world, you know, as a woman and 
if you're not Kellyanne Conway or you're not really on the extreme kind of right, and if you yourself are not a patriarch, because we know not every patriarch is a man, as my friend Kelly Deals said on my own podcast, I think it's easy to see the issues. And so people come to find me probably through the holistic side. Like, so I think that being a nutritionist is more attractive than being a feminist, right? And I think that they come to me because they're looking for that pain relief or they're looking for that understanding or they're looking for fertility support. But then the way that I position things is, you know, it opens their eyes. And I want to say that when I first started writing this book, so I got my book deal when my podcast was about three weeks old. And so it happened really quickly. And when I first set out to write the book, it was much more about nutrition. And that was going to play a much bigger part of the book. And I imagined when I was first writing the proposal, I imagined that the book was going to be period diet like more in that vein, with a little bit of history at the front. However, as I started researching, and as I was podcasting, it took me about nine months to write the book. And I'm researching, I'm podcasting, I'm having these conversations, I'm out in the world, I started to realize that this isn't just about drinking more green juice to have a better period. And I started to see all the issues where menstruation intersected. And when I sat down to look at my book, I realized it's not helpful for me to just write a book about how to have a better period if I don't also set the stage with here's the reason why you don't understand how your body works. Here are the forces that are working against you to keep you in the dark, to keep you in pain. At the same time, it didn't seem helpful to write a book that was just kind of unpacking the feminist perspective or the cultural commentary and the history of shame and taboo without also then saying, and here's actually how your body works and here's actually how you can manage it better. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, for one, am very grateful that your book ended up where it did because I I think it's perfect. I love it. I think you're (laughs) much more explicit than you have been in this interview around systemic issues and the intersection of for example, capitalism and politics and culture and class and, and how this is a public health issue and it's enablement by patriarchy. Absolutely. And I think what I say in the book, and, and I truly at my core believe this, is like, it's not an accident that we don't understand menstruation, right? It's not an accident that we don't have safe, effective tools to manage diseases and pain and issues around menstruation. That is by design of patriarchy and capitalism. And part of the reason why I reached out to you is I see this issue as an issue of violence against women. If you're allowing us to engage in our daily lives, less comfortable in pain without opportunities to have reproductive choice that are not endangering our fertility and future health, then it's an issue of violence to me. And and it's very relevant to our liberation. And feminism is definitely at the core of how we can find our way out. <laughs> so so let's make, yeah, let's make that word no longer the stigma as well. Let's break the curse, not just against menstruation, but feminism as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, another thing, just going back to what we talked about 2015 being the year of the period, I do also think that the reason why we're having this conversation now is, yes, you know, there were the issues around the silencing and the denial of the body and those types of things. But it's only now that we can have these discussions about providing free menstrual supplies in an office building because we don't have one woman sitting at the table anymore. You know, like it is because we have, although the road is still long ahead of us, we as women, we have broken through a lot of barriers. And so now that you're not just, there's not just one woman 
at a decision-making table and maybe there's two or three, right? Like until this time, it hasn't even been safe to have this conversation because if, you know, it was 1982 and you're the single woman in your entire office to like bring up putting pads or tampons in the bathroom for your employees to have free access to whenever they needed, like you would have just been like the dumb woman <laughs> at the table. Yeah. Right. I remember that. So I think that, you know, I will give also, I, I think it's important to highlight that. Um, it is because of our current position and status that you, that now it's safe to start having this conversation. Well, that's a great segue into our closing engendered questionnaire, which I've adapted from James Lipton's Inside the Actor Studio. What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression, in your opinion? I mean, just everything. Everything, right? Like, just, I think that the entire future of our planet and our society really rests on dismantling the violence of all ways. It's not just physical violence, but it's like the violence that we just discussed. We need to stop this if as a species we want to continue. What gives you hope? It's cliche to say, but, you know, teenage girls right now are, I am just such a big fan of all the young people who are, refusing to just accept this world that's been passed down to them. And every time I hear about a girl or a group of girls who's organizing a pad or tampon drive at their high school or their college or university campus, it just warms my heart. It makes me think we might be okay. And finally, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? I think we can do more listening to our bodies more trusting ourselves and that intuition, less listening to what society tells us we're supposed to be doing. Thank you so much, Amanda Laird, host of the Heavy Flow podcast and the book, which is coming out in March this year. Yes, thank you. This is really fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. 